starting <clears throat> today to really feel like, excuse me, really feel like autumn, fall weather, that hint of it that comes this time of year. I was struck by that feeling of the change of the seasons walking over through the woods tonight and the quality of light this time of day. Maybe it has to do with these being this far north. There's a certain quality of light as autumn starts to come on. And there's a poignance to this season that I feel may not be there for, for everyone, but it's a, it's a great time to be on a retreat, I think. There's something about the change of the seasons that for me seems to incline the mind and the heart to quiet and to uh, turning inward. I've been here at this time of year a lot at IMS in different capacities over a long time, a lot of years, not as many as my colleagues, but still quite a lot of time spent here in this hall and at this time of year. And I was struck this evening walking over and the setting sun light of the setting sun and walking through the woods. I was struck by the, the beauty, the fleeting quality of beauty. We need to be careful what we take for granted. We take a lot for granted. We need to be careful how we live. I suppose I should begin my talk. (laughs) The chances of me getting through it are not that good to begin with. (laughs) But before I do, (laughs) I don't know why, but I was just doing some walking meditation before coming in and and I was reflecting on this quality of faith that Brian spoke about so beautifully last night, faith or confidence. We might find that at different times, in different ways. We start to find our own sense of trust or faith, confidence, whatever word you want to use. Trust in this quality of awareness. I was looking in my own heart. There's a lot, I see a lot of this quality in my heart. It's very big and huge in there. Maybe has been for, since the get-go in a way. I'm lucky that way, maybe. But anyway, there's tons of it. So if you feel any lack, (laughs) you can have all of mine. Anytime you feel a little low in that department. I'm giving it all to you right now for your happiness and benefit. So if you ever need any, 
You can have all of mine. I got lots of it and to spare. Now I'll start. <laughs> if I conducted a survey here in the hall and, and I asked, you know, why did you come here? You know, what's your motivation to come to this retreat to undertake this spiritual life, a practice uh, like this? There might be quite a wide range of replies to that, ways we might answer a question like that. Maybe we're just looking for a little more ease or or some kind of feeling of balance in our lives. Maybe something difficult or or really traumatic happened and it it propelled us into this kind of search. Maybe we were inspired, something we read or someone we met or heard about and, and there was this inspiration. We felt, oh yes, this pointing to some possibility through that inspiration we might have found. Maybe we're, it's just mostly curiosity. Curiosity about what a long retreat would be like, for example, to come here for, for the autumn. Maybe one or two of you wound up here by accident thinking it was a health spa and <laughs> still hopefully looking around for that hot tub. It's got to be here somewhere. But I think all of us would, would say that there's a way that our motivation is at least in part related to a, a sense of, uh, of a longing for meaning for a deeper connection to, to life, some deeper understanding of what it is to be alive, to be a human. We may have touched, certainly at some point, some sense of, of questioning or dissatisfaction with the conventional offerings, the conventional strategies that are offered to us to find happiness and contentment in our lives. You know, wondering if, if what's offered in, in that world will ever really bring us any kind of lasting happiness. And if we look at the values in, in this society, at least, in great part those are, are based on, on getting and having, acquiring things or experiences, a lot of that kind of energy. And we can, we can find that we we get swirled into that and find we're measuring our worth, measuring our happiness in terms of things we've gotten, things we have, things we can somehow lay claim to. We can define success in terms of what we've gotten. And maybe it's not so conscious or obvious, but but then we can look at how just how language is used so much and all the things we have, you know, we have a car and a house and all the stuff in it and we have partners or spouses or we have a body, we have a mind, we have knowledge. We've had and we have experiences. And we can start defining ourselves in, in terms of this, all we have, all we've gotten. 
there can be a, it's kind of a, a dangerous way to value oneself in terms of things we have, things we've gotten. There can be some unease, some anxiety, because things don't last. We're, we'll be parted from any of the things we've gotten that we use to define who we are or measure our happiness. They'll get old. Eventually, we'll be parted from them. And if we're measuring our sense of well-being or our worth in these terms, then, then it's a setup for this endless kind of pursuit for, for the next thing that does the trick somehow. Searching for meaning, fulfillment outside of ourselves in things we might be able to get and acquire. When I was in high school, it's a long time ago. Sometimes it seems so weird to be sitting up here. It's like, how did that happen? It wasn't something I planned. Anyway, when I was in high school, there was a book that um, I know many of you are familiar with. It was published when I was in, in high school called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And uh, it was very important. It was my Bible, <laughs> you could say, at that time in my life. Very important book. I'm going to read a passage from that that uh, has stayed with me over the years. It will be familiar to some of you. In this case, uh, Don Juan is speaking to Carlos, who's come to him to seek learning. And he says this, Before you embark on any path, ask the question, Does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question. And when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. A path without a heart is never really enjoyable. You have to work hard even to take it. On the other hand, a path with heart is easy. It doesn't make you work at liking it. For me, there is only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to, to, is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. And I remember reading that and, and wanting so badly to feel some quality of that looking breathlessly, feeling that I was somehow walking on a path with a heart. I didn't know what that might be like, but I had this strong sense, this intuition. It must exist. It must be possible. But, but none of the paths that were being offered to me at that time seemed to have any real heart. I couldn't find it there. I thought, well, there's got to be more to life than, than the version of reality that was being handed to me by the society. Something beyond these conventional ways of seeing the conventional offerings for finding happiness and success. I felt it must be there, but I didn't know where I could look or or possibly try to find it. 
And so maybe that's one of the reasons we would come to a retreat. Because we're looking for a path that might have a heart. Or maybe we're here because we feel like, well, I think I might have found one. There's a word in uh, the Pali language that I like a lot called, that's samvega, samvega maybe. It's usually translated as spiritual urgency. It's an aspect or a way of cultivating this quality of ardency that Joseph spoke about the, the other night. And so you could say this quality is what might motivate us to look for a path with a heart. You know, it's, it's a quality that makes us examine our life and, and ask the question, what am I doing with my time? How can I use my time? Well, what's, what's worth doing with a life? And I think this is a quality that we all have to some extent. We wouldn't come to a retreat like this if we didn't have some connection to this quality of samvega. It's a huge commitment and takes a lot to get here, to spend this time. Every year it seems as I get older, the passage of time seems to speed up. I don't know if anyone else notices this. You know, years go by so quickly. Just another one gone. So fast, it seems. Where does the time go? And of course, the perception of time is not a fixed thing, is it? You know, a whole one meditation period can feel like an eternity. Ring the bell. (laughs) Ring the bell. And then another year of our life, the last week, where did that go? There's a place in one of the collections of short suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. And it's, a, it's an unusual place where the Buddha is, is quoting another teacher who was around at that time, a teacher named Araka. And um, I'll read just a few things from from what uh, this teacher said. It's a long list of um, kinds of images that he gave about this fleeting nature of a life. He said, short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life for none who is born can escape death. And then Araka gave these these beautiful similes from nature, these images, just as a dewdrop on a tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long. Even so, a human life is like a dewdrop. It will not last long. And just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops, a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and not last long. And just as a line drawn on water with a stick vanishes and will not last long. Even so, a human life is like this. It does not last long. These beautiful images, but they point to something really, really true. Something we can really touch. 
is a little more from the teachings of Don Juan. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and fast. One of us here has to learn again that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at an arm's length. It may tap you at any moment, so you really have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that. That's pretty strong language. (laughs) But it points to something really important. You know, we, we actually, none of us has any idea how much more time we have, how much longer we're gonna live. There aren't any guarantees, not even the next breath. We don't like to think about this. We don't really like to let the truth of this in. Most of the time we try to avoid it. Someone once told me that they were doing a practice called One Year to Live. Maybe some of you have heard of this. I, th- I think it's from a book um, that's by that same name. It's not something I've actually read. But I mentioned this because it's an interesting question to ask oneself. You know, what, what might I do differently? How might I live my life if I knew, well, I really, I have this, this finite time. I have this one year. It's a question I have really asked myself at times over, over the years. Sometimes I've thought if I really knew it was true, it'd be kind of cool. It'd really help me put things in perspective. And sometimes when I look at my life, I find, well, I, I wouldn't really change very much. But at other times, it's pretty sobering and humbling to look at how I'm spending my time. And then, you know, we turn around and another year has gone by. And so often we live as though we have all the time in the world. But the truth is that death is our constant companion. It's walking along with us. It's just there to our left. And if we come into a real relationship with this truth, the truth of our own mortality, not in some morbid way that that takes us down into, into a dark place, but if we come into a really, a real relationship there, we can actually find that it serves as a source of source of real strength and clarity for us. But as I was saying, there's a lot of conditioning to avoid this subject. There's a lot of fear around facing this truth in, in our culture, I think. And if you look, you know, at how, how we tend to hide dying and death away 
We hide it out of, out of our sight, special places. We don't have to see it. And then we sanitize the dead, you know, these funeral parlors, try to make, make the corpse look like it's like the per- like just taking a nap, maybe. And we treat death like it's, like it's a mistake or like growing old and dying are somehow evidence of our personal failure or a reflection of bad taste on our part. It's kind of how it's treated. <laughs> and the sphere of, of this is so pervasive. Maybe it's obvious, maybe it's subtle, but it pervades our lives a lot of the time. And we, we focus on outward things and on getting and acquiring and having and all of the different things we do to define ourselves, to tell ourselves who we are and enhance our sense of, of comfort somehow. We can spend a lot of time avoiding, repressing, not looking at our relationship to our own mortality. And and it can really lead us to lose out on a lot of what life has to offer. Here's a poem I love by Mary Oliver. It's called When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and then snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I love that the line, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. I mean, if nothing else, our death is going to be really an interesting event. It's the next guaranteed to be interesting thing, especially if we're actually present there for it. You know, if we really can can show up for it, meet it with mindfulness and without struggling. Step through that door with curiosity. I one time, I heard this story, I don't know who told it, it's a goes way, it's a long time ago. It was someone who was living 
as a monk in Thailand and had become friends with an, a very an older monk, a very well-practiced elderly monk. And, and he was getting quite old and towards the end of his life. And at one point he, he called this, the person who was telling this story called him in um, where he was, he was lying. And he's, I guess he knew he was coming to the end of his life. He, he was dying right then. <laughs> Come, come. And he was able, his mindfulness and his equanimity were so strong that he was just describing the process. Oh, yeah, now this is starting to shut down. He was able to describe his dying moments with some incredible clarity, that process. Can you imagine that degree of mindfulness and balance of mind? This is actually a possibility. It's not just a story I'm telling. And in a fundamental way, this whole practice, we can see it, we can hold it as a preparation for meeting our death when it inevitably comes. We can really look at it that way. And as Joseph said the other day, this is could be an incredible opportunity for us at that moment if we meet it in the right way. And so if we're living with a, an unacknowledged fear or maybe acknowledged fear of our own death, of our own mortality, if we actually, in a gentle way, start to face that fear, start to look at that, start to undo our conditioning around it. Bringing our fears to the surface, not digging them out, not in a brutal way, but if we, if we start to bring those things more to the forefront of our consciousness, and we can start to see that they're impermanent, those fears, that they're empty of anything solid, that they're not telling us some truth about what's real. We can start to let them go. And, and this can really broaden the scope of what we hold as possible for us as a human. And a meaningful relationship with our own mortality brings us into a direct relationship with the truth of impermanence, which goes to the very heart of what the Buddha was teaching. And connecting with the truth, with the understanding that all things are impermanent is, is stressed throughout the teachings, this understanding. The whole path seems to flow from a real relationship to this, this truth. And even and the classic description of a moment of awakening, the moment of stream entry, first stage of enlightenment, it's usually, it's, it's very simply described. The stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. It's a deep insight into that truth that opens the mind to the unconditioned. But we can fall into a superficial relationship with this this understanding. You know, it's it's so pervasive in these circles, you know, we hear it, yeah, everything's impermanent. It can become a, a kind of philosophical stance or a, 
uh, a concept that we ascribe to an idea. Out here in the woods around IMS, this is a great place to practice here. This is a, a real forest center. A lot of the places that get called forest centers in Burma, for example, if we were in a forest center in Burma, we'd be in the heart of a very noisy village, you know, and there'd be a lot going on. It's pretty quiet here. And we have these beautiful woods and these, these woods can teach us everything we need to know about the truth of impermanence. It's all right. It's just shouting it at you constantly, just right over there. You don't need me or any of the rest of us with these words, you know, we can get it. Direct transmission, right in. Just go out there. If we let it in, you know, trees are born due to causes and conditions, isn't it? You know, if, if uh, there's a seed and it goes into the earth, if it falls in the right place and then the right amount of rain and sun and all the things that hap- happen there, then, then, it will, then it'll sprout and we'll have a seedling and then a baby tree. And I just saw some walking over here. They're out there and these little baby trees are there. Hope they make it through the winter. That's tough, getting through the winter. And then they grow and become bigger and eventually you have a nice, huge, mature tree. If we walk in the woods, we'll see all stages of a life of a tree there. Little baby ones and saplings and mature trees and old trees that are losing their vitality and and we'll see dead trees, ones that have fallen down and they're they're turning back into earth and, and new trees are sprouting right out of that. I see all of this there. It's just it's just the way of nature, right? It's just nature presenting itself. We don't make a fuss over it, a problem out of it. It seems really beautiful. If we notice it, you know, they're just trees. But if we notice this sense of rightness there, but this is the teaching of the Buddha. And if we look at this in the right way, if we bring our understanding and awareness to this, to seeing this, we'll see, well, our bodies, our own birth is not any different from the birth of a tree. You know, we, we are born due to causes and conditions, things that come together. We need nourishment the same way that the tree needs to be nourished by sun and rain and nutriment from the soil. And, you know, we take food and our bodies grow based on that nourishment. And, and our bodies are changing just like trees. You know, they lose their leaves and get new ones. And we lose our hair. We don't necessarily get new hair. <laughs> At least in my case, I'm losing it, but it's not coming back. <laughs> but still, our hair, skin, nails, they're growing and they die and fall off. Somewhere someone once said, I heard that, I think we get a whole brand new body. And it takes about seven years to get every cell replaced in a body. That's kind of amazing. Who are we if we're in a state of constantly being replaced like that? 
And so if we look, we'll see that we're not any different from a tree and, or anything in nature. We're just a, an aspect, a manifestation of that natural process. We see, if we look, all things internally, externally, they're the same. All things, if they have been subject to arising, are subject to passing away. They'll change and pass away. That's just the way of nature. And as I was saying out in the woods, we don't struggle with that truth. We let it be. We find beauty there, the rightness of that. There's this harmony and balance, it seems. Oh, it's just right. these stages of life, these changes. And it's so healing for us often to spend time in nature, opening to that. It it has a healing quality often for us. We aren't in contention with things there. But then when it comes to ourselves, it's not different. Somehow we feel it's not right anymore. These changes shouldn't be happening, you know, like a mistake or something we should have been able to avoid if we just had had our act together. You know, and we fight against it and struggle and try to hold on. And we don't want to see that we're the same as nature, same as all things that arise. This is from Ajahn Chah. Trees, mountains, and vines all live according to their own truth. They appear and die following their nature. They remain impassive, but not we people. We make a fuss over everything. Yet the body just follows its own nature. It's born, grows old, and eventually dies. It follows nature in this way. Whoever wishes it to be otherwise will just suffer. And if we sit and pay attention to these bodies and minds, we'll see that they're in a state of constant change, isn't it? It's always changing. It's actually changing very, very quickly. You know, how many births and lives and deaths do we go through in a single day here at the retreat? Take take birth in these different realms and dwell there for a time and then that changes and we take a new birth into a new realm. Is there anything in that flow that we can actually hold on to? Of course, most of the time we get caught up in the process of that flow of change. You know, we get lost in the details of it. We don't see the change because we get carried along with the current of it, caught up in the details. We get caught up in the world of the senses and all of the sights and sounds and touches and smells and tastes and all the rest of it. And, and especially we get caught up, in the, caught up in the world of our thoughts and emotions and all that we think and feel about this flow of experience about the world and, and all that we tell ourselves that it means about me. 
swept up in that. We don't see the change. And then we wind up attributing a kind of solidity or reality to it that it actually doesn't have. That we'll actually see that that's, if we look closely, that it doesn't have any solidity, doesn't have any ongoing fixed kind of truth or reality in that change. And then we try to hold on and it just slips, slips away if we try. It just keeps slipping away. It's like trying to hold on to moving water to a river or a stream. And no matter how hard we might try to do that, it's just going to slip through our fingers, isn't it? It just will slip away. And if we look closely, we'll see, well, there isn't actually a river there. There's just this flow. There's nothing to hold on to. It's just flowing. But sometimes when we try to hold on, it's like holding on to a slipping rope. And if we try to hold on to a slipping rope, what happens? We get, we get rope burn. The only solution, if we're getting rope burn and it hurts, the only solution is to let go. This is from a, a teacher, a Thai uh, teacher named Upasaka Ni Ki Nanayon in, in a book called Pure and Simple. She said this, if you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's only just this, arising, remaining and passing away like a rippling current of water, where the rippling isn't a thing at all. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present, arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go. That's when you gain release. To me, this is related to this idea of refuge. We've been speaking about this in different ways. It's kind of been the theme of the week in some some way. This idea of refuge, where we, we find place of safety in that flow of change. And so if we're trying to hold on to a, a moving stream, trying to hold on to the river, well then what we're doing then is, is we're seeking refuge, safety in something that is inherently unstable and unreliable placing our hearts 
upon that which by its very nature isn't reliable, isn't really a safe place of safety. I read an article once, someone asked this, um, a Zen teacher, uh, what was the secret of her happiness? I guess she was a happy Zen teacher. What is the secret of your happiness? And she replied, it's the wholehearted and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. Those Zen teachers are great with (laughs) one-liners. But it's a good, it's a great one. Because if we, when we find ourselves living in a state of non-cooperation with, for example, the unavoidable truth of impermanence, it's a setup to suffer. And we set ourselves up to suffer. And then if we find ourselves suffering, we tend to blame the world. We find ourselves pointing here and there to, to fix the blame for our unhappiness, for our suffering. It's out there. It's, it's due to something in the world. But the world isn't to blame when we're suffering. It's just doing its thing, unfolding lawfully, naturally due to causes. The poor world is innocent. It's just unfolding according to nature. We just have taken refuge in the wrong thing. That's why we're suffering there. And so instead of taking refuge in that which is unreliable, if we take refuge in wisdom and wakefulness and love, if we take refuge in the truth of the way it is in the moment right now, it's just like this. That's a place of safety no matter what's going on. We can find a real refuge in that truth of things. We can take refuge in awareness itself. That's what we, we learn to trust this through our practice. We trust this quality of awareness. We find this faith confidence that, that uh, Brian was speaking about last night. We find a, a place that is safe, a safe place to rest our heart in this quality of awareness itself. And we start to see that awareness is not affected by what's known. The awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of anger is not angry. We see that that this quality of awareness, that awareness can hold anything that arises. And so we can find refuge, safety in awareness itself. And through that, we, we find a truth that was there all along. We take refuge in the truth that's there now and always has been. We start to find a voice of wisdom that arises in our own heart. We find a place inside that already knows the truth.
have two endings. Always two. I'm going to give you both of them because we have time. And my colleagues will be impressed with the brevity of my talk. <laughs> it's always good to impress one's colleagues. <laughs> Even if it's only by brevity. <laughs> So, ending number one. A lovely quotation by the great Thai forest monk, Ajahn Phuong Jyotiko, from a book called Awareness Itself. You have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything, aware but it can't yet let go of its perceptions, of the conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this, without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, this basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. This is from Ajahn Chah. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. So let's just keep sitting quietly for a couple of minutes and let these words drift out into this cool autumn evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.